More than a century ago, as World War I came to a conclusion, the Czech and the Slavic peoples of Central Europe declared their independence from any and other all empires, and the state of Czechoslovakia was born. Forged from the war, its territory a millennial-long battleground for the armies of Europe, Czechoslovakia for a season was peaceful and prosperous, but then came the Nazis. They chipped away at the Czech borders bit by bit in the name of uniting and reuniting the German-speaking peoples of the world. And then on March 15, 1939, as the rest of Europe and the world turned their heads away, the German army poured across Czechoslovakia's border unopposed, and Adolf Hitler himself paraded into Prague. The country was dismembered. Its elected government went into exile. World War II followed shortly thereafter, and Czechoslovakia suffered as much as any nation in that war, and the Jewish population there was virtually exterminated. In 1930, nearly 400,000 Jews lived in the country. One generation later, there was less than 8,000. The war ends, but the oppression does not. Czechoslovakia is liberated by the Soviet army and then occupied by that army. They trade the Nazis for the Bolsheviks. Five years of brutal, bloody, fascist war replaced by four decades of brutal, burning Soviet occupation. The people pushed back. They enjoyed the Prague Spring of 1968. There was a flash of democracy and self-rule. The Russian army returned, however, and savagely put down that rebellion. There was a young man an instrumental and inspirational figure of that 1968 rebellion, no older than today's millennials. And I talk about him regularly, Václav Havel. The communist had taken his parents' business. He was forbidden to conclude his university education. And because of his involvement in the Prague Spring, his books and plays were outlawed. He was a writer by trade. His passport was confiscated. He was repeatedly arrested and tortured. He spent four years in prison, yet he persisted. Twenty years after the Prague Spring, 40 years after the Soviets set up their gulags in the country, 50 years after the Nazis first invaded the land, and 70 years since they first declared their independence, Václav Havel became president of a renewed and free Czechoslovakia. It was the Velvet Revolution, as it was called in 1989, sometimes called the Gentle Revolution. I remember it vividly because I was a college freshman studying history, and here was history unfolding before my very eyes. I was transfixed as the Soviet Union began to collapse. It had been a threat my entire life. Democracy began to emerge, and the Iron Curtain hanging over Eastern Europe fell off its transom. And it was kids my age at the time, college students, who first took to the streets in November of that year. And soon almost a million people were protesting in the streets of Prague, and in the course of little more than a month, a month, the entire Soviet Politburo resigned and fled the country. 
Their constitution was changed to prevent one-party rule. The concrete barriers and the barbed wire that had formed the boundary with West Germany were all destroyed, and Václav Havel was elected president. Not a single shot was fired. Not a single army was marshaled. Before his death in 2011, Havel won most of the humanitarian and peace awards on the planet. He was as skilled a leader as Europe has ever known, considering all that he had lived through and all the challenges that he and his people had faced. But he did not credit his eventual success to his politics or to his organizing ability or to his intelligence. He gave credit where credit was due. He never lost hope that things could change. To my favorite quote of his, one you've heard often, hope is not optimism. It is a state of mind. It is the certainty that life has meaning, regardless of how it turns out. I am not an optimist because I am not sure everything will end well. I just carry hope in my heart. That quote is the namesake of this current series of talks that I began last week on the Old Testament book of Ruth. Carry hope in your heart. I gave you the first chapter of the book last week, though I told it differently than you might have expected. I didn't speak of Ruth and Naomi. I spoke of Raina and Sharita. I didn't speak of Bethlehem and Moab. I spoke of Hermosillo and Arizona. I didn't talk about a long, hard walk through the Negev Desert bordering the Dead Sea. I spoke about the Sonoran Desert and illegal residents cutting a border fence in their effort to stay alive. Now, why did I do that? To pick up this ancient story and to bring it forward through the centuries and drop it in your lap that you might see and hear and understand that this story is not as far away from us as we might think. This story could be our story. This story is our story. It's the same reason I tell you about Václav Havel today. No, you may not have ever jumped a border out of desperation. You may not have ever led a peaceful uprising against decades of oppression. You may not have suffered all the losses contained in this single chapter of the book of Ruth. Enough human tragedy for multiple lifetimes. But we have all hurt. We have all made desperate decisions if we've lived any length of time. We have all been pushed beyond our ability to cope. We have all been crushed by circumstances. We have all felt powerless. We have all been angry with God. We have all been left alone. We have all tried to gather up what remains and attempt to press on. And the outstanding question is this. Have we done so? Will we do so while carrying hope in our hearts? Because I can guarantee you, without a little hope, you just can't go on. What is hope exactly? This is a line in a Stephen King novel of all places. Not that you find hope in all of his works. But a character in the book says, hope is a dangerous thing. 
hope can drive a man insane. And that use of the word hope is fairly consistent with the more philosophical use of the word hope is is a cruel joke. Hope is something that convinces gullible people to long for something that is impossible for them to attain. Hope is just another word for dashed expectations. It is nothing but starry-eyed, false anticipation that coaxes humanity to its undoing, the Greek philosophers said. And sounding even more nihilistic is Nietzsche, who was a nihilist, who said that hope, quote, is a malicious instrument that simply prolongs human suffering. The witness of faith says otherwise. Martin Luther King Jr. said that hope is a thing of infinity. And certainly he was right because the Apostle Paul called hope one of the three things that will last forever. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. And back to that Stephen King novel, when one character says, hope is a dangerous thing, hope can drive a man insane, the retort from the other character is this, quote, no, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. That, for me, is hope's exact definition. It is what never dies. More than human longing, more than our personal aspirations, more than some head-in-the-cloud dream, hope is about enduring. Look at all the clinical studies and the practical examples of those who have survived the worst atrocities prisoners of war, individuals subjected to prolonged abuse, others with various traumas, Holocaust survivors. The survivors always have some power, something intangible within them to bend but not to break under pressure. These individuals who are people just like us endure, they persevere, they hold on, even as they suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But when the battle has ended and the waters have settled, they remain. They are hurt, maybe, but alive. They are battered, but they are not defeated. They are disappointed how things have not gone the way they had planned. But still they possessed this fuel of persistence and determination. They had a resiliency, which is the best synonym for hope that I can find. Yes, hope is a dangerous thing, but not because it makes people insane. It is dangerous to a status quo. It gives people the tenacity to keep on keeping on. It gives people the incorruptible belief that change is possible. It gives people strength that they did not know that they had. And here's where we find Naomi and Ruth. Naomi has lost everything. She left home 20 years earlier abandoning the land, abandoning the village of her birth because she and her family were desperate and starving to death. 
She immigrates to a country that is the sworn and historical enemy of her people. In that foreign land, her husband dies. Her sons, thankfully, make it to adulthood. They marry. But having avoided the famine, they cannot avoid death. They die as well, leaving her without grandchildren. It's like there is a curse of some kind on the men of Naomi's family. And Naomi, in an ancient patriarchal society, is left defenseless, penniless, resourceless, and she is embittered by it all. She says, verse 13, The Lord Himself has raised His fist against me. She feels abandoned. She feels forgotten. Worse than that, she feels that God is against her. That God is kicking the life out of her. She feels that God is this cosmic abuser who is beating her with his clenched fists. Well, wait, I thought this was a story about hope. It is. Hope is in Naomi's heart, believe it or not. That tenacious, relentless energy, that keeping on mojo, it's still there. Because you hear it in her language. She hasn't given up completely on God, not yet. She is fighting with God. She hasn't lost hope. It is her hope screaming out against the universe that something is unmistakably wrong. If she didn't have hope, down deep in her heart somewhere, when she buried that last child, she would have sat down in the Moab desert and died. I quit. The opposite of hope is not anger. It's not bitterness. The opposite of hope is not rage or resentment. The opposite of hope is not protesting against heaven or even losing a little faith. The opposite of hope is apathy. It is indifference. The opposite of hope is throwing in the towel and giving up. And we know Naomi isn't quitting. Tears running down her face, steps that are as heavy as hell as she goes down that road feeling bad, 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 to quote that song from Woody Guthrie, mumbling not so much prayers to God but accusations against God as she goes. Her head is down. Her shoulders are stooped. Caustic, grieving words like water from a sieve come out of her heart and mouth, but she is moving. She is walking. She is going home. You don't have to feel good to have hope. You don't have to wake up and paint this false smile on your face and say, well, I'm just too blessed to be stressed or some other bullshit like that to prove that you have hope. You just have to keep moving. Stop when you have to. Rest. That's okay. Cry a little. Cry a lot. Grieve. 
And if your tears blind you to the road in the distance, then just put down your head and look at your feet and take one more step. That is hope. And Ruth sees it in her mother-in-law. Why else would she commit to taking a week-long walk through the desert with this rattle trap? Why? Why else would she do what Naomi once did at her age, jump a border and make a life in a foreign country among foreign people? She is giving up everything to go with Naomi because there is something about this woman who has suffered and hurt so eternally much that keeps her going. And Ruth will take this road with her. Ruth will not turn back wherever you go I will go wherever you live. I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Hope is burning inside of Naomi still. And Ruth is going to stay with her and be warmed by that burning. Even if the flames seem to be scorching everyone around her. George MacDonald, a great Scotsman from the 19th century, began his career as a Presbyterian pastor. But he didn't stick with that church long. He found it too restrictive for his rather free thinking. He went on to become a freelance preacher, a writer, a poet. He was friends with people like Mark Twain and Walt Whitman and a mentor to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. His writings are prolific, they are far-ranging, everything from science fiction to theology. But I like a little essay he wrote about this hope we have, this longing that we can maintain even when it doesn't feel like hope or faith or love or much of anything useful at all. He uses the words of Jesus from the cross as his launch point, there where Jesus cried out much like Naomi, My God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to what MacDonald says. When the smoke of the battle that was fought by our Lord rose up between him and his father, and for that one terrible moment before he broke the bonds of life, Jesus cried, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never had it been like this. Never before had he been unable to see God beside him. Now he could not see, could not feel God near, and yet it is still my God that he cries. My God. His hope stands naked in his tortured soul as he hung naked and tortured. Pure and simple and surrounded by fire, it cries out to God, for God is his God still. When the sun is shining on the flowers and leaves of fancy, it is easy to look upwards and to say, my God. It is easy when we have the mental nerve 
to endure. It is easy then to turn to God and trust in Him. It is easy in pain, so long as the pain does not pass certain bounds, to hope in God. And then McDonald's question. But what is to be done when all feeling is gone? When a man does not know whether he believes or not, whether he loves or not. When art, poetry, religion are nothing to him, so swallowed up is he in pain or depression or disappointment or temptation or who knows what. What is to be done when it seems that God does not care for you and certainly you have no feelings for God? Troubled soul, you are not bound to feel. You are bound to rise. For God loves you whether you feel it or not. So try not to feel good when you're not good, but cry to Him who is good. And if ever the time should come, as perhaps it must come to each of us, when all consciousness of well-being shall have vanished, when the earth shall be but a sterile promontory and the heavens a dull and pestilent congregation of vapor, when neither man nor woman shall no longer please us, when God himself shall be but a name and Jesus nothing but an old story, and when death is gripping at our hearts, shall we still be able to cry out in hope, My God, for you are still my God.